This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Welcome, I am Erin May Quaid. I am the advocacy director here at Gender Justice, and with me is, I guess I'm with you. This is a CLE and you're the lawyer. I'm with you. <laughs> no, I, you're, you're, you're generally the lead. Um, I'm Jess Braverman. I'm the legal director at Gender Justice. Um, and I'm here with Erin, who likes to take the role of legal director. Um, and our topic is about um, religion and civil rights. And I think when that discussion, like, comes up in the legal sphere, it's often kind of framed as, like, LGBT people, LGBTQ people are over here, you know, religious people are over here and they're like butting heads, but I, that's not like people's realities, right? No. Yes. No. I mean, so you and I both have uh, religious backgrounds and I, right. I am Lutheran. I'm ELCA Lutheran. Um, actually, we just had our daughter baptized on Sunday. It was a really good day. Um, so I, yeah, I'm definitely a person of faith and, um, and I think, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about um, how religion is being used to curb civil rights or expand civil rights. And I think one of the things that can definitely come through is, you know, as a Christian, as a Lutheran, like there's a specific strain of Christianity um, that is trying to do some of the the um, taking away of civil rights. And so I think it's important to just talk about like, we're both, like I'm both queer and a person of faith, you know? Yeah. And, and I grew up uh, in a very like Orthodox Jewish. I went to yeshiva for nine years. I used to be fluent in Hebrew. I bet it would come back. Yes. Um, my family are religious. Uh, they, they fled religious persecution. My grandparents were unfortunately in the Holocaust and after World War II ended w- way afterwards. So they stayed there for a long time. My parents, my mom and dad and their parents uh, immigrated over to the U.S. Um, they thought, you know, Judaism was really important for them. They used to have to practice like hidden underground. And so it was really important for them that I get a religious education here in the U.S. So I did go to yeshiva for nine years. Um, we went to synagogue every weekend. And so it's not like LGBTQ and religion are not like mutually, you you all know this, but it's like whenever you di- dive into like legal precedent, they're framed as these like, can't possibly get along. You can't possibly one be or the other. And so Right, one or the other. And, and they're in constant, you know, conflict. So that's just not the case. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of folks in the audience uh, as well. So yeah, we'll, we'll um, just taking you through what we're going to discuss today. We're going to start right, with some SCOTUS, um, always a good time, upcoming and previous SCOTUS both. Um, We're going to talk about Title VII, Title IX, Affordable Care Act, uh, abortion, emergency contraception, lots of- Minnesota Human Rights Act. Yeah, the the Minnesota Human Rights Act. Yep, legislation. We've got like a pact. All right, let's just get started because this is like- Because it's packed, I'm going to say, folks, if you have questions, please ask them as we go along, because I don't want I don't want questions to go unanswered if you're like waiting for the 30 minute Q&A at the end. I don't think we're going to do 30 minutes of Q&A. So please ask your questions. You can put them in Q&A. You can put them in the chat. Um, I'll be monitoring both, but take it away. Jess, actually, I'm going to I'm going to launch us here. Yeah, launch Let's it. Launch start. it with an upcoming case with the Supreme Court, it's 303 Creative. We will be doing a SCOTUS chat, our infamous SCOTUS chats um, on Monday, but tell us a little bit about this case. What is it, what, like what's happening? Yes, um, so 303 Creative, um, that's a case involving someone who does not make wedding websites. 
but like will someday make wedding websites um and wants to make um she makes so she makes websites she claims she would make websites for anyone right like if you're gay but you run an animal rescue she'll make your like animal rescue website um but she will not make websites for um gay weddings so or same same sex marriages as the court refers to it so that's she and what she's basically saying is she's in Colorado and she's saying like uh, the Colorado human rights ordinance or it's actually uh statewide so the the Colorado human rights statute won't let me discriminate against LGBTQ uh people who are getting married and I want to do that and so she she um when affirmatively like sued them to be like don't come after me when I have my discriminatory company that I that I will have but don't have yet case like winded its way through the courts and is now in front of SCOTUS uh an oral argument will take place on Monday right which is really concerning and I you know you're saying Colorado you're talking about gay weddings same-sex weddings why does that sound familiar to me yeah. So a few years ago, Matt, um, thank you for the question, even though you, as legal director, you definitely know the answer. I um, obviously a, know the answer. A few years ago, there was a case masterpiece cake shop, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, which is where a baker, it was like the same deal. They were like, but they actually do bake cupcakes. So that I guess that's the difference. A baker bakes cupcakes and they would sell cupcakes to anyone, but they will not create cupcakes for gay weddings, same sex weddings, because the cupcakes are their like artistic expression of their bake bakery bakingness of their baking arts um you know as a state fair baking ribbon winner i i guess i kind of do understand the like the heart and the art that goes into baking but they they would they would sell a cupcake to a gay person but they will not make them for gay weddings um that case went in front of scotus and everyone thought like okay this is this is going to be the case where scotus decides like you have a human rights law and you have a religious freedom claim and the two are clashing what happens right like what gives way to what but instead SCOTUS punted and they were like the Colorado um the the Colorado agency that investigates this had some evidence of bias against the religious people I think because someone in the agency was like religion has been used to discriminate like it was something like that um and the court was like this is too much we're not going to animus yeah we found some animus here so they kind of punted um, so now this question is back up again of like, okay, there's a human rights ordinance. There's someone who wants to discriminate based on their religious beliefs around marriage. Now what? And um, every time the Supreme Court takes a case, they like are saying that they're answering a question, right? The question isn't like, can, you know, are gay people bad? Like, what is the specific question? I don't even want them to answer that question, not this court. But like, yeah. what is the specific question that the Supreme Court will be answering when they make their decision in this case? Yeah. And just so folks know, there are people here who aren't attorneys. So some of this stuff you may, you may, if you're an attorney, know, uh, or even if you're not, you may know, but we just want to make sure um, this is accessible to everyone. So yeah, when the Supreme Court takes up an issue, they do answer a question, like they're answering a, a specific, like you said, Erin, a specific question. And the answer there, the question they're answering here is whether applying a public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or stay silent violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Um, so again, that's, you know, if a public accommodation law um, requires you as an artist to make some sort of statement, does that violate the free speech clause of the First Amendment? Okay, so they don't want to make wedding websites for LGBTQ couples because of their religion. Why is this not a religious claim? Why is it a free speech case? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So a long a, a while back, the U.S. Supreme Court held that um, if there's a law that that's that's generally neutral, generally applicable, it doesn't target religion, um, but it happens to like it incidentally burdens someone's exercise of religion. They're not going to like look at that law super closely. In other words, that law will probably pass constitutional muster. Then the problem. So the problem is you have a human rights statute that says like no one can discriminate against gay people. It's a generally you know applicable law, so it would get that like very low level of scrutiny. That decision does not apply to free speech claims. So if you bring a free speech claim, the court's going to look at the law really carefully and be like, is that law like really important? And is it like narrow enough that it justifies like whatever burden on speech? it's doing. So a lot of religious organizations actually have been bringing speech claims because they get better they get they get better a better standard of review when they do that. So that's that's what this case is. And so and I'm going a little bit off script here but I think yeah the question that I have is like for a long time there has been an active effort to find a way for people to be able to discriminate against LGBTQ people. And this is like, they, you know, this was the thing. It's like, this specific thing is art, this art that I make for your wedding, whether it's a, um, a invitation or a cupcake or a website or a video, like what, I guess I'm just trying to figure out in my head, like what else, like where, where does it go after that? Like once you start chipping away cracks form and so like what ha- could happen after that? I mean, we just saw there was that Miss America decision that came out recently in the Mm. Ninth Circuit, I want to say, barring transgender women from Miss America competition. It's like because Miss America is like expressive speech about ideal womanhood, it burdens their like expressive. Like, I think that was the argument there. Like these speech cases are going to be like very expansive. And it's the reason you see like sometimes cases are... um, they're they're based on like people wanting to find the perfect plaintiff to bring a case. And I think sometimes I'm not saying it happened here. I don't, you know, I don't have enough background to know who's lying, who's telling the truth. So I'm not claiming like 303 creative is lying, but sometimes organizations try to find like the perfect plaintiff. I think sometimes they concoct the perfect plaintiff. So they kind of create these businesses with these models where it's like, we not only make websites, we make these artistic websites with our personal like opinions about things interspersed across the website you know they do things to really play up the speech aspect because that gets them a better review in front of scotus Um, there was a case like that in minnesota right where it was like we we don't do this thing we would like to do this thing and and we'd like to discriminate against lgbtq people when we do it yes the minnesota one did seem like rather concocted it was this like they don't make website like oh no they don't make wedding videos they wanted to make wedding videos, had never made a single one. And these wedding videos, in order to concoct this like speech claim, they were going to be these videos where they would be like, you know, it's like Jane and Jim's wedding, but the videographer puts like all their own commentary in it about heterosexual marriage. So it's like yeah. a wedding video that's your wedding video with your videographer's like religious views on the video, right? It was like concocted. It, it was so cockamamie. Like it's a thing no one. It's a highly in demand service. It's a, yes, like like everybody yes. wants I wish, commentary from yeah. a random stranger on their wedding video. Oh yeah, like there's strangers' religious viewpoints, yes. like to be like written across your face on your wedding video. Correct. But that was the like business model that was concocted because like that's how they get to that free speech claim. And so they brought that case actually in Minnesota. 
um, made it to the Eighth Circuit, which is the appellate level court in the federal courts. They got a really good judge for them who did rule that they're allowed to discriminate. But then um, the attorney general, I believe, was litigating the case was like, okay, well, let's bring the case back down to actually do fact discovery. Like, what is this business? Who are you? And at that point, they withdrew and dismissed the case. So it a little sketchy, a little weird. And I think, so there's a really good question that kind of gets to this. Doesn't the Supreme Court generally want a real issue instead of like a maybe someday this might happen issue? Yeah, like it depends on who you are, right? I mean, that's a that's a great question because it's like, I remember when there were like sodomy laws on the books and, you know, the, the SCOTUS would be like, well, you you know, or courts generally would be like, well, you haven't been arrested. You haven't been, you know, like, okay, you're, you're gay, but like, have you been, you know, has this happened to you, whatever. And it was like so hard to get, you know, what's called standing, right? That means that like you have enough of a, there has to be like a contract controversy. So I can't just sue Aaron because like, you know, we disagree about something. It's like Aaron, you know, stole my property. I want it back. I sue her to get it because there's an actual controversy. Um, it, it's, it, there is some case law on standing where it's like, you, you know, a law hasn't been forced to enforced against you yet, but there's like a really imminent risk of enforcement. And that's what this person's saying. Like, I'm like, they, I'm about to make these websites. I'm about to turn away a gay couple and I'm going to be prosecuted for it by the Colorado Department of Human Rights. Um, I, I don't know that. I, I think there was some claim that someone asked her to make a website, but I don't know if that's been like really substantiated or not. Um, sure. Well, so. I think part of the reason that this case is like this and even the telescope case in Minnesota was that if, you know, let's say my wife and I, adorable couple that we are, we go to get this propaganda video made and they're like, no, and then we sue and they counter sue to say you're violating our free speech. We There's a sympathetic gay couple on the other end of it, right? And so like, there's the people who were harmed and the people who did the harm. In this case, there's the, the harm is only caused to the potential website maker. Um, and there's no sympathetic, you know, victim of this it's, discrimination. It's really, yeah, it's really smart. I mean, what they, what they do is they bring lawsuits before it happens so that there's not like a gay person there to be like, when this happened to me, here is how I felt. Like, here's how right. it hurt me. Um, that person doesn't exist because no one's been turned away. It's just hypothetical. And so it's a very smart litigation strategy to basically the only like human being impacted in the case is the person bringing the case. And there's no one to provide the counterpoint of like, this law is so important because it, it prevents you, it prevents people from treating me like crap. Um, there's yeah. no one to make that case, right? It's it's hypothetical. Right. Um, so it's a very smart litigation strategy on their part. And, and Maria, I apologize because you asked a question and I think it was in relationship to something that was being said at that moment and I missed it. So if you can just re-ask it, but put the context in, we'll make sure to answer it. So, so Jess, you know, last Supreme Court term was really consequential. I think people know that they yeah. overturned Roe v. Wade, but there was a monumental decision out of last term that was related to, to religion. And I want yeah. you to talk about that case. Yeah, so Kennedy v. Bremerton, which is like the football coach case. Um, so basically, there's this football coach who, in the middle of the games, would go pray on the 50-yard line. And what that looked like depends on who you ask. Um, he and his lawyers claimed that he would like very quietly and without fanfare or any sort of like hubbub would go quietly do a silent like personal prayer. But 
you know, as the dissent in the case pointed out, what actually was happening was like he would lead a prayer on the 50 yard line. The players would come. The teammates would come. He's like brandishing helmets. The media is there. People are rushing like fans are rushing. Like and this is happening where like the coach is giving like a very religious denominational like prayer for his team. And it's like, what if you're not that religion? What if you're Jewish? What if you're Muslim? What if you're the one player like not participating? What happens? You know, it's it's the concern is that it is a bit, it's coercive, right? It's someone in a position of authority bringing this, you know, very specific religious practice, very visible religious practice in the middle of a football game. Um, what do you, you know, what do you as a student do? Um, and there were students that said, you know, I was worried I wouldn't get playing time, that I would be penalized if I didn't join in. I mean, that was a real thing. It, it, there are videos of this happening. It is not quiet. Let's yeah. just say that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so basically the school was like, hey, you can't lead, you can't lead like denominational prayers with the team in the locker. Like you can't, you can't do things that are going to be like coercive like this. If on your own time, you want to say a prayer, like, please do, you know, like, of course, but if in the middle of a game on the 50 yard line, you're going to be doing this, like we're going to have a problem. He kept doing it and they fired him and he brought a lawsuit and and it went up to the Supreme court. There's really good questions in the chat, but I'm going to let you finish this. So they brought to the Supreme court what was the like noteworthiness of this case? What were they, what question were they answering? Yeah, so under, so there's something called the establishment clause. When you hear like separation of church and state, what people are usually talking about is the establishment clause. And it's basically that the government can't establish a religion. And the Supreme Court used to use this test called the lemon test, which was um, laws should have a secular purpose, not to like advance or inhibit religion and they shouldn't result in like excessive government entanglement with religion. Uh, Basically, you want to prevent government decision makers from promoting specific religious viewpoints. Um, You know, it's it's meant to be kind of a reasonable person test, like would a reasonable person see like the action or the law as the government endorsing religion? If, you know, one of the one of the more like well-known establishment clause cases that's actually like near and dear to my heart is um, Edwards v. Aguilard, which was the, in 1987, the Creationism Act. Um, it banned teaching evolution in public schools unless it was accompanied by teaching creationism. And the court said no, because it didn't meet the lemon test, because there was no clear secular purpose for the act. Um, and they, the court found like, this doesn't promote academic freedom, it inhibits it by like, you're not giving, you're not like letting teachers give lots of viewpoints. You're saying like, if you teach this, then you have to teach that. Um, and the court struck it down. And you know, the re- Aaron knows, but the reason it's like near and dear to my heart is because like I was taught creationism when I was a kid, not evolution, never learned evolution. And I didn't know until I was like in my thirties that the, you know, you know, that the universe is like billions of years old. Um, I thought it was like 5,000 years old and that everything else was like a theory. Like, this is true. This is, and I learned it in my thirties, um, because I was on vacation and I was picking up a magazine and I was like, oh, cool. Dinosaurs have feathers. That's wacky. And so I like picked up this magazine about dinosaurs and then learned that um, everything I knew as, I don't want to say as a child, everything I knew my whole life was like, yeah, correct. Um, and so I, you know, but I also get like, had I gone to a public school, I wouldn't have learned this thing. You know, for me, it's, it's, it's really like, it's really sad to me. Like I went to the um, Smithsonian recently and I was just like, so freaked out. Like my heart started to pound because it was like, you know, evidence that the earth is that old and um, it shouldn't, it shouldn't feel like this, but it does. So 
Um, but that wasn't that was a lemon test. That was um, an establishment clause case, right? It's the reason why you're not being forced to learn. And not everyone believes in in the same version of creationism, right? Like not every right. religion teaches Adam and Eve. And so it's like you, it's really like religion viewpoint specific. And that was, you know, the the reason that wasn't allowed is because of the lemon test. But in in this football case, the court said they're not going to use lemon anymore because it was too unworkable. And instead, they're going to look to historical practices and understandings, whatever that means. I think the dissent put it really well, where I think it was Sotomayor, because every good burn is is, usually a Sotomayor. But it's like, there's a risk of inaccuracies when the court plays amateur historian. And she's like, it's happened. Like, we don't always get history right. And history is like slanted. So like, what does it mean? Like, right. No one knows. So that's, I mean, that's really concerning. And I actually, I'm going to go back to the, the um, chat because there's a question that like, I love Austin. You have asked the question that I asked just yesterday. Does the language matter in these cases when it comes to transgender people who are married um, when they use same-sex marriage or does it take birth sex assigned at birth or current legal sex into account? I asked this exact same question yesterday. If there was a heterosexual trans couple that went in to have this website made, would they turn them away? And yeah, they'd probably find a way. Erin loves throwing the hypotheticals around. Like she's like, okay, what if (laughs) always? (laughs) Just Um, like I don't know. So like what would what would presumably happen is that there'd be a baker, let's say, you know, who like a couple that they somehow know is a trans couple comes to them for baked goods for their wedding. And the baker says something to the effect of like, you know, I I don't ascribe to these religious point of view. So I don't know what it would be based on, but they could say like my religion teaches that sex is not mutable and that, you know, you're born one way, you know, you, you basically can't be transgender. That's not a thing. And me making cupcakes for this wedding is me supporting, you know, they'd have to come up with, I don't know what it would be because I don't share that point of view, but they'd have to come with, come up with like some reason why, like my religion says no and forcing me to cater for this ceremony is basically forcing me to say like, yes, I agree with this and I'm not going to do that. Like that, that, that's what that claim would look like. So, I mean, it, this isn't just, I wouldn't just think of this as like same sex marriage. Like if a baker, if an interracial couple comes for their wedding and the baker says, I don't want to, you know, my religion says that you don't mix races and I'm not, I, I can't, you know, I can't support this by, by catering. I, I don't know why the analysis would be different and so or it's like, really have you been divorced before i'm a catholic yep. Yep. and i don't believe in that or, or yep. you know do you believe in transubstantial i mean like i just can't see where it ends right like if you right. use your religious beliefs and uh, baking your cupcakes is condoning whatever's happening there like you know it's it sets up sects within our society um in terms of whether that would require a whole different legal case then i mean it's you'd have to like make an argument that this is somehow different, right? Like if the court has precedent that basically says like, I don't know what the court's going to say, that the ruling hasn't come down yet, the arguments on Monday. But if the court says, you know, human, no, like human rights statutes are important, but not so important that they can force people to say things that they don't agree with, you know, in their hearts and whatever. If the court says something like that, you'd have to like, if you, if you wanted to bring another case, you'd have to like, somehow argued this is not covered by what the Supreme Court just said, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Supreme Court ruling is limited to gay weddings, the Supreme Court, but but we won't know until we actually read the opinion, like right. what it's going to be narrow. and how broad, how narrow or exactly how narrow or broad. They could just be like this 303 creative gets to do this because their business model is putting commentary on the websites about religion. You know, if you just make generic wedding videos, like you're just 
a videographer, like, no, you don't get to discriminate. It's when you put in your own artistic flair. You know, we, we don't exactly know how they're going to word it yet. So we have to wait and see. But once we get the opinion, we'll know like how narrow or how broad they're yeah. going to try to make this. And, and we would go from there. And you tune into our SCOTUS chat on Monday because a lot of times they signal in their in the oral arguments kind of where their head's at. So like we knew in December they were going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Um, going back to the football coach, yeah. um, did SCOTUS rule in favor of this football coach? Oh, yeah. And, and overturned the lemon test, like I said, and said, like, we're going to look at like history, whatever that means. Um, but the court, you know, they kind of just made up facts like they were like, yep, it's a private. We agree. It's a we're, we're willing to accept that this is this was a private prayer, a private, quiet prayer that he should be allowed to do. And it's 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 yeah, it's really problematic that the court not only ruled in his favor, which whatever, but basically said, like, we're not going to use this establishment clause test that like we've been using. Well, the court <laughs> Alito claims they haven't been using it, but whatever. We're not going to use this establishment clause tests that we're going to be that we've used forever instead we're going to use this like made up like whatever history. i think history whatever the framers whatever like the white what are they protestant like whatever the framers whatever religion the framers had whatever you know there's just this kind of historical whatever the white colonizing slave owning founders of the country believed right. at the time is right. how we would like to remake this country have fun is what right you know. Because like no, right? Because like no one has a problem. Like if the football coach wants to pray, like no one has a problem with that. The problem is like how coercive is it for the students, right? Like, of course people should be allowed to. Like you should be allowed to pray wherever. But but when you are like in a position of power over other people, it can present problems if it's done in a way where it's like kind of coercing other people. Like what about the religious players? Like the you know their right to say like, well, I'm Jewish, I can't participate in this. But then am I going to not be allowed to be quarterback? You know. That's a real concern. Well, and, and imagine if it had been a different, if the if the coach had been a, a different religion than Christian, right? I think their the decision <laughs> would not have been no. nearly uh, no. as you know no. uh, favorable. So let's switch gears yep. um, and talk about the Title VII expansion of the ministerial exception. Yes. It's a ju- so it's a judge-made doctrine. The ministerial exception is basically like protects religious employers like kind of meant to be churches, but it's kind of expanded to like schools, hospitals, nursing homes by some courts. And it protects the employers really at the expense of protecting employees from discrimination. Like basically, if the place is religious, is considered religious, and the person who was discriminated against the employee is considered to be what's called like a minister, um, then Title VII, like employment discrimination protections just don't apply. Like the Like you could say, like, I was discriminated against and the court says, well, we can't look at that because you're a minister and you're, the place you work is religious. Um, and so there was this case, uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe v. Morrissey Baru, where, you know, just to just think, like, think about this for a second. Like one teacher claimed age discrimination, right? Like she was fired. She's like, I was fired because of my age. Another teacher claimed she was fired for seeking leave to get breast cancer treatment, right? The teachers had no substantive religious titles or training, like they were not ministers, they were not priests, they didn't do like religion, they didn't teach religion courses, they were not even required to be Catholic um, in order to get the job at the school that they had. And the court basically said, we're not going to, we're not going to look at whether this was unlawful discrimination because like you're a minister and your employer's religious. And so that's been really expanded and um, it has like really dire consequences, right? Like these women weren't like, well, we were fired because we taught like Satanism at this Catholic school, like it, breast cancer treatment, like my God. And there've been cases where, you know, for being, 
divorced for, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, really expanding who qualifies for this exception. And it's, it's not limited. Like, it's like just the whole anti-discrimination law doesn't apply, you know? Right. And then, and I think it's concerning too, when you think about the number of places that the, the expansion of the number of places that like, we're religious now, right? Um, we own an arts and craft store. It is religion. We don't want to provide you with, with birth control or this hospital system is now, you know, owned by religion. And, and just like the, the creep of, um, of religion into kind of, you know, different parts of our life and then the exceptions to discrimination law that, that are come with it. And they're being right. brought. Which means that, um, you know, the flip side is like, there are religious employees who are going to be impacted by this. And so it's not, um, it's not necessarily just, these decisions aren't necessarily protecting religious people. You know, you'd have to give a caveat to that because it does not protect religious employees. It protects religious employers who right. can now discriminate for any reason, right? They can fire you for being black. If you know what I mean? Like if, yeah. if you're a minister, it doesn't like they're allowed to do that. Um, or, you know, fire you for for following your own religion, whether right. it's you know, for healthcare treatment or for you know whatever it is, right? There's so many religions and so many different ways people live their faith. Right. Um, okay, so you talked about Title Seven, which is uh, protections in employment. Title Nine prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in schools. And tell me about that. Yeah, so Title IX applies to schools that receive federal funding. Um, and we know like some private religious schools don't. Um, the statute also has an exemption. Uh, it, won't, it doesn't apply to an educational institution controlled by a religious organization if, the, if like applying that law would not be consistent with the religious tenets of that organization. And so there were some cases that created exemptions from this, yes? Um, well, there there was a challenge to the exemption. Um, Hunter v. U.S. Department of Education. Basically, um, I think this was at what's the name? Oh gosh, I forgot the name of the school. Um, they all went. It's it's like in the news all the time for like having issues of like sexual assault on campus that they don't address, sexual harassment. Um, but they what, what the students tried to do was basically they filed a Title IX complaint and then they sued to stop the Office of Civil Rights, which is the office that investigates Title IX complaints, the federal office, they sued to stop them from ruling against them based on the religious exemption, arguing that like doing so would be like unlawful discrimination against the students. Like basically saying like Title IX is, this exemption is, is unlawful. It violates our rights, like our student rights under the US constitution. And if um, the Office of Civil Rights rules in the school's favor, they're engaging in unconstitutional discrimination against us. So the Office of Civil Rights, they're doing their investigation. They cannot rule against us was, was the gist of what the lawsuit was trying to do. It's uh, ongoing. It, yeah. So OCR, so the court basically said, we can't stop the Office of Civil Rights. Like we can't tell them how, like what to say as a result of their investigation. We're not going to do that. And so the Office of Civil Rights actually in, in February, I believe, did apply the exemption and found that the school did not discriminate. Um, but that's just an agency decision. That's not the court's decision. Um, so, you know, an agency decision is not binding on the court. So you, you bring a claim of discrimination, an agency investigates, they decide, did this happen? Did it not? Is it discrimination? Um, then you can still go to court and be like, the agency got it wrong, right? So OCR did do their investigation found against the students based on the exemption. But when I looked it up, it appears the lawsuit is still ongoing. So the, I, think, I think they're still challenging that exemption. 
Oh yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask two questions because they actually go really close together. So Carlin yeah. asked, how could we use the same playbook to protect our advanced progressive religious and secular values? And Marie said, because um, these don't go together, um, heard on NPR, there was a rabbi suing in Florida because they outlawed abortion, which is a violation of Judaism religious practice. Are you familiar with the case? And if so, can you comment on any of the updates? So so part of your answer, Carlin, is yes, that Florida case is one of them. But Jess, do you want to talk a little bit oh, more? Well, we're 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 actually gonna cover this towards the end, but like you That's all right. are like prescient. Like, yes, we we are like a hundred percent gonna cover both of those questions towards the end. So if you all are okay with it, we might just wait, but because we wanted to end on like a positive note of like yes, right. you know, right. not not one group gets to have get to say like what religion is or what it means or what it, you know. So yeah, a hundred percent we're gonna talk about that. Okay, so I'm going to have you talk about um, Meriwether v. Shawnee, Hobby Lobby, and Anderson in five minutes. (laughs) If you can do it. Meriwether v. Shawnee, so like it's in the Sixth Circuit, which is like, I want to say like Michigan. A teacher would not use a student's correct honorifics and pronouns in class like a student was transgender and the teacher was like, I will not use, I will not refer to you properly. They brought a speech and religion claim the case is still making its way through the courts, I believe. And I, I don't know what the last ruling was. I don't think it was good for the student. It wasn't. Yeah. I, I think, and then I think the school settled just, but like not, I think just because it's like very expensive to litigate. It settled with the teacher. Me, what, what, what that means is like the teacher sued because he lost his job or was disciplined for not referring properly to the transgender student. And the, the school policies. Right. Um, and then um, the school settled with the teacher t- and that kind of ended the litigation. I've um, seen some of these cases come up before too. What if a teacher disagrees with my name? You know, like that's, I don't agree with that name. I'm not calling you that. Like, where does this end? <laughs> right. And and yeah, it's really, yeah, it's very, um, it's troubling. It's problematic. The Sixth Circuit, we are not in the Sixth Circuit. Whatever they rule does not directly apply to us. And we would, you know, I, I just don't, I don't know what would happen if the case went through the federal courts in the eighth circuit. Um, well, I, I can guess. What no, would I, was like, you <laughs> I do. Um, you know, I, we, we have not had this case happen in Minnesota or I, be, I don't believe in the eighth circuit, at least as of yet. So we're keeping an eye on these cases because Meriwether Vishani is not the only one with this general fact pattern but it's another like speech religion claim where it's like using someone's pronoun as speech and you can't force me we'll do really really quickly affordable care acts so what a lot of people don't know about the affordable care act is you know what what people call it like obamacare is that it's also a civil rights law like a sweeping civil rights law christy hall our senior staff attorney was like the first lawyer in the country to bring a case arguing that um it the Affordable Care Act's prohibition on sex discrimination applies to transgender people, which she was successful. It's fantastic. Um, and so the Affordable Care Act uh, came along and it required like a lot of things, um, including like it had all these cross references to like you have to provide all of the services that, you know, so and so agency puts on this list and whatever. And the upshot of, what, of it was that it, it uh, ultimately did require companies to provide when they provide insurance coverage to include contraception in that coverage. And we all know that Hobby Lobby challenged it and was unfortunately successful. And basically the court said like you, you're a closely held corporation with, you know, you basically get to have like you organization get to have religious beliefs that override like 
the religious beliefs of all of your employees and not provide your employees with with contraception. We also we brought a case here in Minnesota, the Anderson case, which we're still litigating involving um, a woman who went to a pharmacy and um, to basically have her emergency contraception prescription filled and her pharmacist said, no, that goes against my religion. I'm not going to give you your medication. We are currently litigating that case. So keep watching our website and our um, email updates for information on that. But um, there's a lot of places where like religious exempt or you know, the pharmacist in, in, in our Anderson case, I'll just say did not raise the religious claims we thought he would like we thought he would say, well, this violates my uh, constitutional rights. For some reason, he never raised those claims. And I'm not and not entirely sure why. So we never really got to that question of like Minnesota Human Rights Act versus like Minnesota Constitution's religious protections. But yeah, that case is ongoing. And, and you know, we're seeing a lot of problems with like abortion bans around the country, refusals to provide contraception, because now it's not just religious refusals. It's also refusals because like providers are scared, even though contraception is not abort is not same as abortion right like contraception emergency contraception delays ovulation so there's never implantation of a fertilized egg um, which is something I now know but my lack of sex ed in my upbringing meant I did not know that until Aaron taught me like two years ago how pregnancy works but but basically like we're seeing pharmacists hospitals scared to provide even like emergency contraception scared to provide these things because these uh, anti-abortion laws are so sweeping so it's like religious objections, risk averse in-house counsel, I guess, is yeah. we're getting like just a perfect storm of like healthcare crisis in this country Absolutely. right now. Austin asks, are there a possibility of cases that would challenge the idea of corporations as people? Are these decisions like for Hobby Lobby, they're not, did they treat Hobby Lobby as a person or is it because? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it does, like it, it basically says like, kind of, like they're like, because you're a closely held like it was basically like you you're you're not like a huge corporation like you're someone where like the people who own the company have so much power and control over the company that we we think you do get these protections but the court was like we wouldn't give these protect you know we're not really saying we would give these protections necessarily to like a huge conglomerate I don't know what a conglomerate is it just sounded like the right word to use but like yes, you know we, we wouldn't necessarily um and so I I don't have a lot of faith that they would limit a decision like that to an organization like Hobby Lobby, but um, that's what the court yeah. said at the time. The makeup of the court is very different now. So it is, yes. And I think that's that's I think one of the things that we've just noticed over and over again is that some of the things that you know Jess and I talk about when we talk about the Supreme Court is, you know, stare decisis and precedent and you know, relying on all of these things. And it seems a lot like this court but the 6-3, you know, majority is, is working backwards from the decision they want and kind of like conjuring. And so that it doesn't, there is like, it's often nonsensical. It doesn't rely on much. It doesn't, you know, the facts are wrong and the precedent is Yeah, the, the making of facts, it drives me nuts because it's like the lower court, the district court, the trial court is where you establish facts. And as the case goes up and up, it's like, well, these are the facts that were established. Now we apply the law to the facts, but the Supreme Court's just like, we like these facts. So we'll use them. Right? And it's true for like the Harvard case too, about um, a so-called affirmative action, right? Oh, like yeah. there, there's different uh, versions of facts going around about the impact of Harvard's admissions process, like what impact it's having on students and, you know, the, the, the folks who don't want Harvard to be able to consider race in their admissions process are basically like, 
these these are the you know the court rejected all these facts, but these are all the facts we're going to put in our brief. And you know, I, I imagine the Supreme Court's going to be like, okay, because they've yeah. been doing that lately. Um, but I do. Let's talk about Minnesota for a minute, Aaron. This is like where this is your like time to shine because we're going to talk about policy and legislation. Um, so the MHRA. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Minnesota Human Rights Act and all of all of its religious exemptions? <laughs> Sure. So the Minnesota Human Rights Act is a state law. It prohibits discrimination in places of education, public accommodations, public services, and uh, what's the fourth one? Housing, employment, public services, like tons of stuff. Um, Yes. And so, yeah, credits, businesses, and it's based on race, religion, disability, national origin, sex, sexual orientation, familial status, marital status, age, gender identity, gender expression. And so it's one of we the strongest were, in the country. And we were the first in the country to expressly protect transgender people in our statewide human yes. rights law. Thank and Minneapolis Karen was the Clark. first city. Yes, we were. And, and gender justice uses the Minnesota Human Rights Act to do our, our work, right? To, to protect and expand gender equity in Minnesota. I almost started putting the mission statement for unrestricted into our gender justice work, but I got there. Um, <laughs> So yes, yeah, so we do a lot of, of that work. There are exceptions. There are also poor, like bad things written to the MHRA. So as a matter of policy, this is like part of the Minnesota Human Rights Act. It says nothing in this chapter shall be construed to mean the state of Minnesota condones homosexuality or bisexuality or any equivalent lifestyle. I it's like just- It's like the first time a law actually like explicitly mentions bisexuality because like they never do and it's for this like like, we we don't condone it we don't condone we don't condone your homosexual lifestyle Erin what does your homosexual lifestyle look like it's a lot of playing with a baby lots of cooking laundry um there's some football involved yeah well the state of Minnesota does not I know not into it they're not into it and then it also says it does not authorize the recognition or the right of marriage between persons of the same sex. So obviously uh, needs a little cleanup just because that's not even a law. That's just a statement of. They just value. want you to know that Minnesota is not into like you you're hanging out watching the L word. Minnesota is not into that. Like, no. do not. No, never. No. Um, you're going to the pride beer dabbler. Minnesota's not into it. No. So there's also exemptions um, in the MHRA for um, religious education, employment, housing, and the use of facilities, and for also employment with youth nonprofits and and housing duplexes. And it's only for LGBTQ people. Those are the only exemptions. You can't discriminate uh, against Minnesotans um, based on their race or religion or disability or familial status or any of those things in religious education, employment, housing, unless it's LGBTQ people. Yes, this, this, the MHR was like written to appease your like homophobic uncle in 1990. You know, like it's just yeah. very dated. And don't but it's worry, all, like, we're not It's all still them. there. It's all still there. Yeah. And should be removed. Um, we'll just say, we'll leave it at that. I'm looking in the um, chat. Uh, would the passage of the ERA uh, offer benefits and further protection? So the thing about the passage of the ERA, which is the Equal Rights Amendment, is that it would go on the ballot and voters would approve to make the change to our our state constitution. So whenever you change the constitution to say like this right exists, um, the way that you clarify law is you you sue. So nothing would, let's say the ERA goes on the ballot, it's approved by the voters, it's part of the constitution, nothing changes until there's litigation to say this thing violates the Minnesota constitution as it is now. And so 
th that is an open question. It's, it's dependent on the cases and the courts and all of those things. And then, um, and general justice uses the MHRA, I think, as you said, all the time, we used it to get rights for trans students in schools. Um, we've used it to fight back against like sexual uh, harassment and sexual abuse at work. Um, we use it like in, in like almost all of our cases, uh, discrimination in sports against transgender athletes. Past legislation like the MHRA specifically sought to limit the rights of LGBTQ people. What about current legislation? Yeah, so I think it's really important for me to kind of like ground set here. There has been this um, very, this very strong push um, by kind of far right Christians to insert a biblical worldview into our laws and our lives. And th there is a, a name for it. It's called dominionism. And um, people who hold this dominionist view believe that God has called their specific version of Christianity to exercise dominion over society um, by taking control of seven leading aspects of our culture. So it's family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and the government. So that is... Um, like when, when we're talking about current legislation, a lot of what I'll be talking about is driven by that. And it actually has a name. It's called Operation Blitz uh, and Project Blitz. And so that is like, a, it's a very real thing that exists in it. And that's where a lot of this like comes to a head and is, is captured together. Okay. And how is this really broad goal of theirs being um, like showing up in legislation? Like how is it coming yeah. to fruition? So I said there, there was a, a strategy, it's called Project Blitz, that includes a playbook. So um, the playbook has copycat laws and talking points for politicians in every single state to use. Um, in 2018, there were 70 Project Blitz-related bills introduced in state legislatures across the country, um, one of them here in Minnesota. Um, in 2018, the playbook, so it was called, was expanded to be like 148 pages. Um, and then in 2019, um, they went underground because there was like more attention on it. And so the 2019, 2020 and the 2020, 2021 playbooks were secret. I think they were uncovered in 2021. So ways that this shows up in legislation. Um, this is the one that we've seen here in Minnesota many, many times. Um, and th there's actually some news about this out of Texas is displaying the national motto in our schools. Now that sounds really lovely and patriotic, but just what is our national motto? Oh my God, don't ask me that. It's what is in our God we trust. In God we trust is our yes, oh that is the national model. <laughs> and so that so it's you know it sounds really lovely in legislation but when you have when you have to implement it it's very religious right and so um, Texas has passed this law and I think the way that they passed it it were it required schools to take donations of the national of like pictures or art or something that displayed the national model. they were required to take them and display them and so a bunch of groups got together and made you know, pictures with the national motto with like rainbow flags behind them are written in different languages. And, um, and so then the schools were like, we're required to take this and display, you know, so, it, you know, a little bit of a, I'm sure the next iteration of those legislation will look different. It has to be in English and can't have rainbows and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm sure it will be. No, ra no rainbows. No rainbows. The gays um, have stolen rainbows from God and like, <laughs> in God we trust, but like he does not recognize rainbows or she or whatever. In my religion, God gave us the rainbows. Okay. Um, so then other ways this legislation shows up and we've seen this in the courts too, is discrimination and foster care and adoption. Um, so LGBTQ people can't foster and adopt. This actually 
actually shows up in more the discrimination against LGBTQ people. I believe it was Kentucky that wanted to be able to discriminate against Catholic and Jewish families as well. If they weren't Protestant, evangelical Christians, they could not adopt through this specific agency. There is a big history of like religious discrimination in foster care. Like that's huge. Um, And it's led to a lot of like racially disparate impacts in places like New York and and other places. But that's been a that's been a huge issue in foster care. And important to say, too, that a disproportionate number of LGBTQ youth are in foster care. And so not letting people who are part of their community, like be the supportive, loving adults in their lives is also just horrible. Um, and then, you know, refusing to provide health care, too. So laws that um, condone the refusal to provide health care, um, we've seen, you know, as we saw in the Anderson case, as we've seen um, across the country, laws that prohibit people from accessing abortion care, um, miscarriage management. We've also seen that some of these anti-abortion laws have had um, the effects of people not being able to access medication for cancer or for arthritis. Because, you know, one of the side effects of the medication could be, it could induce an abortion. Not great and is an organized uh, ongoing nationally. There's something called the Prayer Caucus. And that is the... The National Prayer Breakfast is like the organizing tool through which they do this. There was a fascinating documentary on Netflix. I, I recommend people watch about it. It was illuminating. So yeah, so it is It is an organized, funded project in America to overtake these seven pillars to assert dominion over our life. Let's talk Minnesota. Um, I know some, some folks are not in Minnesota, um, so please bear with us. But we, we're just for a moment, because what's happening in Minnesota, you're one way of saying this is like, like your legislators want to appear like really slick, but they're just taking legislation from like other places and trying to pass it in their own state. They might tweak it a little, but it's like there's national groups who are putting forward like model legislation for groups to use. And that's why if you look at like Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, and you see like the same kinds of bills being pushed, it's not like everyone like independently had unique ideas. Like they're just taking these ideas from other states. And so Let's talk. So, so when you hear about Minnesota, even if you don't live here, it's stuff that's going to show up or has been showing up in other states as well. So let's talk about what's showing up in the Minnesota legislature that's being used kind of like using religion under the guise of, you know, pulling back civil rights in the name of religion kind of a thing. Yeah. So, I mean, um, obviously our abortion restrictions are a really good example. You know, the waiting period and medical misinformation and the requirement that tissue from abortion actually be cremated or buried that instills a worldview on of personhood on um, embryos that not every person, you know, holds. And just I, like, I just always think it's really important to bring up like the underlying anti-Semitism that lays under abortion restrictions in general, in part because the anti-Semitism that we're seeing is so loud and so bold and ratcheting up. And it's just so important to like name that, that in the Jewish faith, um, it is like acceptable and sometimes required to have an abortion depending on the circumstances of the pregnant person. You, you always have to do the thing to save the life. So like I was taught, like, you know, you have to keep the Sabbath, but if someone's like diabetic and needs to be rushed to the, or if you're fasting, but you're like diabetic and need insulin, you know, like don't, don't do something that's going to put your life in danger in the name of like religious tradition, like do the thing that's going to save a life basically. Yes, exactly. And so, um, and I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in Judaism, life begins at first breath. That's the, um, I think there's like a biblical foundation for like life begins at like the quickening, which is, um, I'm sure 18 weeks, something it's yeah. I, 
I wasn't taught this in yeshiva, but yeah, I, I was also, we didn't really talk about abortion. It wasn't like a, sure. yeah, so. So anyway, so that just to name that, that like abortion restrictions impede people's ability to access that healthcare that they need. It, it endangers every pregnant person that doesn't have access to the full spectrum of pregnancy care. And it was also very anti-Semitic and keeps Jewish people from be, being able to like live under their faith. Okay. So, um, so abortion restrictions, certainly we've seen these censorship and surveillance bills in Minnesota that you've probably heard about from other States, like the don't say gay bill, or it's, it's done under this guise of like parents' rights, but parents already do have rights these uh, laws seek to force, you know, educators and supportive adults and students' lives to out their children or prevent them from, you know, using their proper names and pronouns. Censors, teachers, right? We've had the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida, I think I mentioned, um, that is having devastating consequences in schools in Florida. We also have crisis pregnancy centers or anti-abortion centers here in Minnesota that are funded to the tune of about $7 million every biennium. And they are anti-abortion centers that seek to dissuade people from accessing abortion care um, and then offer you know, goods and services if you go through kind of a gamut of taking religious uh, based counseling and classes, you know, we fund those in Minnesota and there's office, often a religious bent and also a, a very dangerous, there's so many dangerous things. And, that and when we say religious bent, like we don't mean like religious, like it's like a very specific religious, yes, it's not yes. like the government's funding, like all sorts of different religious expressions of like birthing, you know? Yes, correct. <laughs> it is. It's one specific one. And we've seen bans on trans youth trying to play um, in sports, which is already like trans youth play sports in Minnesota. They have for a long time. It's wonderful. We actually have high rates of we are, participation. We're include, we, so we're tr a trans inclusive state for Minnesota high school league. And we have led the nation in girls participation in sports. So all these claims yeah. that like, if you have trans participation in sports, something's going to happen to women's sports and, and the sky is going to fall. Like it's demonstrably untrue. Like we're number one. Um, yeah. The thing that happens is when you have trans inclusion is that students know that their sport, that athletics are inclusive and they're more likely to play. But but it's religious, uh, it's an organization that typically represents religious groups that's supporting these bills because yeah. it's not that they suddenly care about girls' soccer, it's that like they want to support a particular view of like um, sex and gender. But we only Correct. have like one minute left and I did oh, promise we'd say yeah. something good, something good positive. Stuff. So yes. we're going to end on, a, on the positive. So there are religious groups who are working really hard to say like, hey, the government is taking on this really specific, like religious bent. It's not like a universal experience. It's not like all religions. And so when you, and when the government does this, they're burdening my religious beliefs. So in Minnesota, we had the first Unitarian Society who, who was one of our plaintiffs in our lawsuit challenging Minnesota's abortion restrictions. And what they, what they argued was like Minnesota's fetal uh, tissue burial or cremation law it supports an idea of personhood that burdens our religion because we don't believe, we don't teach that uh, personhood starts at conception. But this law requires you to treat like any remains as a person and give them like this religious right, right? Because like burial, cremation, like how you do these things, it's it's a religious right. Um, and people who aren't religious do it too, but it's not like a, there's not one way to do it that everyone agrees is the right way. Like these are, you know, and in Judaism, you, you can't do cremation, right? So it's a really specific and, and uh, Muslim people too, I believe we should, cause we should, we have a lot of overlap. The, the first Unitarian society stepped up and basically said like, Hey, this burdens our religious beliefs. And that's amazing. And then there is the Florida case where I think it's like the United church of Christ, the Unitarian Universalists, Episcopal, Buddhist rabbi, like, like all these folks have kind of come together to challenge Florida's abortion law 
that bans most abortions after 15 weeks, saying it violates their religious freedom and their uh, free speech. And it violates the Establishment Clause because it, it puts forward this very specific religious point of view, because really, like, when does person who begin? It's like it could be a scientific question, but it's like a spiritual question, you know, like you the science can tell you, but you have to kind of have agreed upon definition of, of like personhood, you know, like like even if you're an atheist, even if you're not religious, like it is it is at heart a, a, a spiritual question. Yeah, it's deeply personal. Yeah. Yeah. And then the um, oh, and then there's always there's always a satanic temple. They've been doing this forever. So every time, like like kind of like the people who are like fine, then put up the state motto with like the rainbow on it. The satanic temple like jumps in whenever there's like, well now religions get to you know you can put up a like you can force a city hall to put up a flag of a specific religious group, and the satanic temple's like oh hey here's Beelzebub like, <laughs> um so they do a lot of. Yeah, so they do a lot of stuff like that. The last thing, I know we're out of time, so I'll just say the very last thing is cases we're keeping an eye on, two of them. One is the 303 Creative, which we have our SCOTUS chat Monday. The other Sign is Yeshiva, up for it in the chat. Yes. The other is Yeshiva University won't let the Pride Alliance be recognized by the school, and a New York court forced Yeshiva University to recognize their LGBTQ club based on New York's human rights law. Yeshiva University decides to like skip everything and go right to SCOTUS because it's such a friendly SCOTUS for them. They're like, surely they'll let us like do this wacky thing. And SCOTUS was like, well, most of SCOTUS was like, no, go back to New York. But there was a dissent. Alito was like, New York courts aren't going to force you, you know, New York courts aren't going to get it right. Like just, you know, we think you should be allowed to come right here so that we can tell you, you don't have to recognize the Pride Alliance. So the Yeshiva University case could make its way through the courts, maybe like next term. I'm not sure. But those are two of the cases we're keeping an eye on. I know we're over time. We know we talk yep. fast. We know we talk about a lot of things, oh but we're so smart. What are you going to do? You know, we, if we don't talk fast. It just doesn't, you know, we got to get it's, out of our brain. It's my like 10th cup of coffee. Like we need to do this like, early, you know, before coffee number 10. I don't drink coffee as you learned. Yeah, you don't. I, know. I don't drink I know. caffeine. Um, it doesn't look like we have any other questions. So thank you so much for joining us. We are so appreciative to all of our supporters. And yeah, and thank will- you to Dorsey Nichols Caster. We really appreciate yeah. your support. And we'll see you for more education sometime soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Janel and Audrey Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.